Good morning, everyone. Welcome. This is the state of the recommendation discovery and what Brian's calling computer curation, which I'm going to try to take the word computer out of, out of theirs. Um, so we have some very intelligent folks in the room, and I'm, I'm very honored to be here up at this table with these guys. Um, you know, I'm just a guy in the music business who understands technology and putting that together with folks, and these guys are the masterminds behind it all. So I want to get into some very broad topics with these guys and, and put them on the spot, but I also want to get granular in the fact of what they do specifically. Um, I'm going to introduce these guys to you. We have Tom Reddit from Grace Note. Um, we also have Michael Jeffrey from Rovi. Gary Ga uh, Kanazawa from StubHub. And Genia Kalekia. Is that right? Nailed it. All right. So basically what we're talking about here is, you know, recommending music to somebody could be as hard as um, buying a toaster or going to see a movie, right? You know, very... Um, subjective information goes into telling people what they should listen to or telling your friend down the street what they should listen to. But, you know, we've got out of that scope of things now. And it's like, so, uh, technology at its best. So, you know, the days of sitting around the dinner table and you go, hey, you know, what have you been listening to? And you don't write it down. And you go home that night and you're like, God, why didn't I write that down? Well, now it's as easy as going into some UI or someone's uh, interface on a Spotify or Audio or Rhapsody and going to your friend's playlist and saying, hey, look, this is their history. This is what they then You can listen to it all without even, without even talking to them. You know? So we're coming to the days where recommendations are going through the roof and you're being told what to listen to on patterns or life developments or even your GPS where you are. And that's kind of stuff where we're getting really interesting, right? So, and then I'm, I'm speaking to these guys in the room and you know, what I'm interested in is the transparency of that data. What does all that stuff really mean and how can you parse it down and, and use it, right? So use it for the consumer, use it for the rabid music fan, you can use it for advertising. And more importantly, where I come from, which the basis of my world is, is the rights holder, right? So how does the rights holder come out on this on the end and get paid, right? So it's, it's great to have technology based and have recommendation, but the real thing is the licensing of that data and how we can get it out and how we can get folks paid. Um, so I'm interested in that and I'm hoping these guys can help me get a better understanding of that. So some of the things I wanna get into, um, you know, in recommendation world, you have automated recommendation, you have human recommendation, you have social recommendations, which the world says your friends are the best people to tell you what you should listen to. Um, Tastemakers, human-fueled curation, voice recommendation, which is a natural language understanding and context aware, right? So these are some of the things we're gonna get into. Um, so one of the first things I wanna ask the group, and anyone can answer here, is we all in this room have proprietary technologies with the companies that we work for, um, but what's the benchmark of data, right? So metadata is this thing that exists. How does, what's the benchmark for all your companies or the situations that you're in? And is there one common benchmark that you all use? That's a, that's a question that comes up all the time uh, around recommendations, which I, I find really amusing given that um, people's interest in music is so highly subjective, and in fact, recommendations themselves are. The, uh, I, I mean, I think that's part of why um, 
uh, human curation is so important because there's a um, it, it's it's very difficult to quantify what it is that constitutes uh, taste and uh, so there are things you can look at you can look at um, uh, measures of how long you're able to retain uh, listeners attention uh, you can, if you have the right systems uh, you know we have systems for liking and disliking music at the track or the artist level then we, we can use that information to gain insight around it uh, skips you know those, those are the sort of standard mechanisms for evaluating uh, people's response in a in a playlist but that information can only live and be and be useful if the objective metadata is precise, cleaned, and white gloved, right? So, is does the objective metadata and things come into play with this? Is the solid basis and uh, absolutely? At both Tom and I from Rovi and Graysent side, you have objective data, which is your factual, and you certainly have that as a basis, um, and you verify that both with uh, editors and with rights and content owners. Um, and then there's the subjective or what we would call human curation. I think you mentioned that at opening that we'll talk some more about that. And, and then lastly, I, at least from my view, there's the what Tom just touched on, it, which is the personal piece, which is the implicit. What do I listen to? Where do I listen? Um, what things or interaction or devices do I have? All of those kind of things, and they build up that, that kind of what I call three-stool you're standing on that we call the metadata, and then recommendations and uh, so, so the, forth build on that. The stool being maybe four is one's given the objective and the other three are figured out, right? Mm -hmm. So that leads me to my next thought here is, you know, and I, I'm going to throw in some terms that aren't really terms. I'm just going to throw them out there. So I was talking to these guys earlier. And so, you know, we're all comfortable with entering something into a, a computer, we're buying something, we're searching something. Um, you know, we all feel good about that because that machine's not necessarily telling us what we need to do, it's giving us options, right? So you do a search, gives you 50 different things, you pick which one you wanna do. So how comfortable as a consumer, or anybody in this room, being, if you say something to something, or a device, or metadata, and it's gonna tell you exactly what you should do. I mean, how, I mean are we reaching the point of being comfortable with that. And that's where this next point of the conversation goes is modulated thought and or having things think for you, right? So, hey, this GPS time, it's seven o'clock, I'm on a beach in Mexico, I need to drink a Corona, you need to read this magazine, watch this video, do this. And basically, this device or this informational network is telling you exactly what to do. So that leads us into um, voice interaction, you know? so. Do you guys, everyone here in this, on this panel has some kind of interaction with that? And I'd like to have someone go into that if you want. Gina, do you want to step into that? Sure. Uh, yeah, SoundHound uh, is a music search platform, and we have a new product, Hound, uh, which is way more on the natural language understanding side of things. Um, yeah, I think we're finally ready for these interfaces, and uh, they let us discover a lot about the world around us, and we expect them to give us accurate information. So, I mean, how does this tie in um, 
Michael with the natural language understanding world. And I know Rovi's been trying to do that through their informational graphing and so forth. Yeah, so Rovi's Knowledge Graph um, was a, uh, a company uh, Rovi acquired about a year and a half ago uh, from uh, Vivio. And I think we are, like Gina's saying, we are reaching that point where we're seeing interaction now with voice. Um, but the important is not, we've had speech recognition for 20 years. It's the context or the understanding that's actually really tough. Humans are great. Right now, all of us are listening, or some of you are listening to me. And um, it's the context. It's not the actual words. It's that I'm having discussion. There was a conversation and, and a question answer uh, here and, and myself. So all of that has to be put together into some sort of meaning or context. And then you can take action and recommend a song or say, hey, I have a relationship between this song and a concert. Um, those kind of things, uh, I believe technology-wise, it's arriving, one, and two, we're seeing from the device level, manufacturers now having these always-on powered devices, so Apple's pushing that, right. Google's pushing that, et cetera. So in that scheme of things for the consumer, it gets kind of scary, right? So this device or this application's telling you you need to do X, Y, and Z. So from an advertising standpoint, can this information be skewed, or can it be told have whatever the demographic is saying, hey, well, listen, you know what, these five songs are, I mean, can advertising come into this play of things? And how do you, how would you see that working? So uh, from my view, you always, with humans, you can always have nefarious things going on. There's, there's no question that you can influence um, and an advertiser can influence. And honestly, advertising is about communicating a message and influencing some sort of behavior right. uh, that in, in its purest form is to get some sort of awareness and some sort of action. And so um, I don't think there's anything terrible with an advertiser saying, I'd like to put my very best um, content available to be consumed for music or uh, other or video or concerts. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with that. It's to the, the systems and the platforms and the service providers that are implementing and application providers to offer the very best experience. And ultimately, I think the consumers will choose and say, this is personal, it delivers good solutions for me, and the next person may have a different set of interests and may go with a different application or platform. So I, th I think the market and the consumer will take care of making sure that it's, it's truer um, you will always have advertising. Of right. So the thing is, is like I was thinking about this before the panel. I'm like, man, this is basically subliminal messages, perhaps. You know, like the modern way to do it. So that's a probably another panel discussion. But the one person in Gary in the room is like I'm interested in because StubHub covers such a wide world of events, places, times, people, different likes, and it's interesting to me that StubHub can say, hey, listen, you know, you should buy this concert ticket, but you should also go see this NBA game. Or if you listen to this track, what, Gary, maybe you can take us inside that world of like how a company like StubHub has such a broad range of opportunities to recommend, a, recommend things, and, and on different levels and different social, you know, it's, it's broad. It's, yeah. No, absolutely. It's it's been something that's really interesting to us. And, and as context for uh, for you out there is, uh, I'm with StubHub Labs. So a lot of what we do is really looking at some of the things that we have that maybe that we haven't used as much in the past. Uh, a lot of data, a lot of information coming in, uh, and we, we've done some tests. Like you know, we have a very large catalog, hundreds of thousands of events, and so we try just 
kind of exposing that with, with a kind of a manual process to go by categories. And what we found is that you know, users really didn't engage with that. It, it, it wasn't relevant, it, didn't, you know, it wasn't a quick enough of an experience, and so now we have a, a multitude of signals, everything from what people have purchased to um, with our StubHub Music proce uh, product, we do a scan and match of iTunes, Spotify, you know, upcoming Facebook, uh, and, and really kind of try to learn uh, what the preferences for, for that fan are, and then provide the right recommendations uh, within uh, a geographic area of concerts that will be relevant. And so, you know, our success or our failure will be will really is, will be gauged by our fans uh, by how relevant we are. If we, we don't uh, expose anything, they're just going to go away. If there are things relevant, they're going to come back. So how open are the fans to giving you that type of information right now? Like... Yeah, it's been surprising, uh, very open. So in our StubHub Music uh, product, you know, you could certainly opt out and just get lists of concerts that are uh, not personalized, but um, most of our users opt to do the scan and match on Spotify or on, on their iTunes library, and really because the, 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 the experience that you get based on that is so much more relevant and there's not a lot of long browse sessions with right. that. Right. Taking uh, five steps back, a little bit about curation. I know Grace Note's been working on something called Rhythm Curation, and they're dubbing it the non-technical musicologists, right? Is that what they're doing? It's, uh, it, so Rhythm is our platform for music discovery. It uh, uses our, um, uh, the descriptive data that we have created around the world's music um, to make recommendations. It's available, Rhythm is available as a service to provide recommendations. We also uh, make the data that powers the Rhythm service available to other companies such as Apple and Spotify and Microsoft to power their recommendation technologies. But one of the things that, that we were, were thinking in terms of, of our service uh, was um, tools to be able to really um, create very custom, customized stations. And uh, as we were working through that and seeing how the, uh, how much human curation has become really important for many of the music services, uh, trying to, uh, having a, a tool that would help you, um, you know, narrow down the set of music into uh, certain uh, corners or niches or whatever uh, to present um, things that you may not have thought about, things that, that uh, present ideas to you that as an editor you might not have um, in included in your, your thinking. Uh, yeah, so, so I, I want to stop you right about. there. What I'm interested in that is when I first read that about music, and I read like 15, 20 music blogs a day, um, and having these people tell me, like, you know, I've cult classics that I've never even thought about are reissues. So my, I guess my other part of my question to you about this is, is like, are we going to be able to bottom sweep catalogs and find stuff that we didn't even know existed because folks aren't listening to it? Is there an opportunity to dig up the bottom, you know, not because it's not good, it's just because people haven't discovered it or there's no way to find it because it has, there's no daisy chains of events. So is there going to be an opportunity to flush historic or, and or not used content as a result? Look, all the music, music catalogs that we are all listening to right now are like 30 to 40 million. Uh, there are some companies that are approaching 50 million tracks. This is an impossible amount of music for anybody to listen to. And for most of us, we don't care about the vast majority of that. 
but we all have our own narrow areas of this, and it's the promise of recommendations, uh, not just those that, that our friends or trusted sources provide, um, but the, the promise is that you can go find these things that you may never have stumbled across before. Right, right. And that brings me, Gina, like, I know your world's more, more scientific and you like to break it down to audio and literally how this music is, you know, made up, the matter that makes it up. And so, I, I mean, I, I've read some stuff about you and part of this is how do we educate people or not or give them a device that helps them understand that kind of thought, you know? Right, I think that is sort of where the success of the interface comes into question and how you can communicate to the user that they are iterating on their like own curation of music. Right. Um, Soundhound is the sort of discovery element of that where this is more of the recommendation side. But, um, but yeah, I think it's all about the engagement of the user and how much uh, data they give you. Uh, and yeah, what you what you do with that? Right. So it leads me to another. We're all talking about this experience with one person who's either logged in the StubHub or gone the GraceNote curating playlists or is on Roby's reading Roby's information served by a DSP or whatever it may be or SoundHound. My, what I'm what I pose to the group here is, I'm curious in, and I know the car is a big part of Grace World's Grace, Grace Notes world is that if I'm sitting in my car and then the airbag light goes on because someone's sitting there and there's nobody sitting in the passenger seat. Now there's someone sitting in the passenger seat, right? So maybe my wife doesn't like. I want to use Ty Roberts's quote here. Um, he doesn't. His wife doesn't like Black Sabbath, right? But he's driving the car. When she's not in the car, the car would play Black Sabbath for him because that's what he really likes to listen to. So I guess what I'm getting to is like how much how how much further in time do we need to go to have? I'm at a dinner with five people. These are, the, these are the five people that are with me. So I'm saying the other social experience and the people you're with, how far out can we expect that to be? Where it's not an individual experience as opposed to it's a social event, things in the car, whatever. So I think natural language understanding could play a huge role in uh, getting us to that point. Um, I mean, if you can tell it all this information and you know just give it the details straight up, then right. why not? Right. So could it easily be as having a GPS and all your friends around you and they, and they can, you know, play less Black Sabbath, right. play exactly, more exactly. indie. Um, yeah. Getting into the car experience. Like, so do you feel, I feel like the car is the natural progression of this whole thing. I feel like the car world, living in this inclusive world in your car, right, gives you the most ability to do what we're talking about the most, right? Uh, I, I, I think so in some ways, but also just having the mobile device does. Right. The, the mobile device is, uh, you know, us carrying around all of our information and all of our connection to all of our information sources. And, and uh, the car is, is one of those environments. Right. Um, but, you know, your, your workplace is probably one of those environments. Right. Your home is one of those. And we will see all of these uh, becoming more and more intelligent, but they will all be... Uh, so, um, uh, connected through the through mobile devices, the thing the thing that is always connected to us. Right. So, Jay, I just want yeah, to build on a little. On um, I think there's two very kind of funnel things that that you mentioned. One is the shared environment, shared experiences. So that's the dinner table. Usually, a house is a shared, hopefully shared uh, experience in that case, or the car could be shared or could be personal and and TV too. But the 
the, the mobile phone, like Tom said, that's very personal. So what I think is interesting is if you can combine the personal device, I mean, we all keep our mobile device with us most of the time, even at home. We might even keep it close um, and or in the car, too. So there is ability then to share that information. Again, that's only if the end consumer says, I trust Jay and I'll share with Jay. I want right. it to be social. Or I don't trust Jay and I won't share. But if I do, then my experiences together and those shared experiences are actually um, better. So therefore, I may, sh may share. And then with strangers, I may not. And I have still have my personal experience. So I think you have both. And the trick there is for all of us to have the data and the uh, signals and analysis to put that together and say, okay, this is a shared ex experience, that's the context, and these are the individuals they, they're sharing. Let's go ahead and, and put together a playlist um, um, and don't play Black Sabbath. Right, right. So, I mean, are we getting the, oh, basically what I'm hearing here is that people want to be told what to do all the time. I, I would look at it a little bit different. I, I think the way that couple couple little differences with StubHub is that we where we try to connect people is for the live events, and the, the way that we look at it is that that's a social experience. You know, not you know, not many people go by themselves, and so we want to do a better job of being social and, and connecting people together that might have the same interests or friends that might want to you know see yeah. the same event right. and connect them at yeah. that point. More so than anybody on this panel, I would think that so. When you're doing this and you're drawing up metrics about this, what, what kind of ROI do you get on something like that? Do you, I mean, how, how much of an increase that this has actually been proven for you inside of StubHub? Yeah, you know, what, what's really interesting for us is, is that um, kind of making the fan happy and, and making our customers happy has a, does have a direct tie to ROI because as a marketplace, we want to be able to match buyers and sellers. And, and I was talking a little bit about this before the panel, but... Uh, some of our analysis shows that 30 or 40 percent of people don't go to a concert because they didn't know that it was it was happening. And so our ability to you know make that match better and and give better recommendations will make that fan happier because they see an event. Of course, that's going to drive more ticket sales and have a great ROI impact on the industry and for StubHub as well. Right, right. Um, that leads me to my next question: Is um, through this, and I'm, I know that content and all this stuff. So I'm interested in analyzing this data, right? So a lot of this stuff that we're talking about is obviously, more so on Gary's side probably, is consumer facing. Um, with Rovi, do you find, what do you find, like, are you trying not to deal with the consumer? You want to have it flushed to DSPs? Like, how does this information relative to just the back end of things as opposed to the consumer-driven part of it? So Rovi's focus is, is B2B, uh, absolutely for sure. Um, and powering those experiences so that as with metadata, uh, with technology and services and support, um, and it's a wide range of, of customers, um, and not to be consumer-facing. And, and furthermore, I would say, for, for Rovi anyways, is, is, is not to try to compete with your customers. So mm -hmm. our customers are the music service providers or in the video business service providers, application developers, um, StubHub, and, and many others. And our goal is to provide you the data, some services, uh, a lot of cur curation goes into that, and try to be an enabler 
for really, really great experiences in the case of, of music to power those, those experiences, um, sim similar like uh, helping uh, SoundHound and to stay out of, uh, of their actual business, help them succeed. Right. So I, I, if I might, sure. uh, just to add to that, I, mean, I agree with what M MJ's saying, but is it, the other thing is a B2B provider, um, uh, you, you do actually see end user information as well, and that's actually uh, quite relevant to improving the end user experience, mm -hmm. because yeah. the more you know about what the end user is doing, the more you can make the experience a better one for them. Getting them to stay on the screen or getting them to stay in the application that much longer or whatever. Right. Sorry. And that leads me to, you know, I would just want to brush upon this and get back to the advertising part of this, is that are you are your companies, SoundHound, I mean, all of you for that matter, how much are advertisers coming in looking for this data and this information and and how does that work? I know a lot of your your basis of your companies is licensing technology or serving information in B2B, but I mean, how much does advertising really starting to take effect on this whole thing? I'll jump in, it's, it's huge demand there. I think the industry is still trying to figure out um, how, how, how we can leverage that. And to what Tom just said, there's a trust of sharing. So you've, we've got customers that are sharing uh, their play information, um, and personalization, driving taste profiles, context, um, all kinds of things like the keyword searches and things like that. And um, many of our customers don't want that shared with others. Uh, many will only want it shared in certain uh, circumstances. Um, from the advertising side, they would like just full access to everything that a consumer's ever done. Um, the industry is still wrestling with how, how do you do that um, one in a way that, that makes economic sense for the whole ecosystem, that's everybody involved, and two, um, also I think protects the consumer. It's a, it's a huge, huge, I think, struggle right now in the industry. A lot of data is generated. The question is, how is that being used? Today it's being used to improve recommendations, promote songs and related things. I think if we look out five or 10 years, we'll see tremendous more use cases of the way data is going to be used for things that we probably haven't even uh, imagined in five or 10 years. So how, I mean, that leads me to the next question. How are you going to be able to parse this down to make it have, make sense right now? Like, I feel like a lot of these recommendations and things that are going down, it's very instantaneous, right? I mean, like, so how far back can we go immediately? I mean, it seems like the, all the recommendations could only be now as opposed to, because we don't have this historic data to go back, right? Well, I, I think a lot of the services have uh, quite a bit of historic data. Um, there is a temporal nature, and for humans, um, we, there's a relevancy question that always comes up. Many of the interactions on recommend, consume, link, um, we're, I was joking with Gary, it's not very fun to find out that there was a concert last weekend um, I'm not even sure if that's a positive or negative to find out. Um, so time and temporal has a relevancy. It's one of the signals. And as time goes by, some of that may not be as relevant, um, but it still is relevant. Um, most of the music services and certainly the Rovies of the world have a, a quite a bit of data, historical data. The challenge is really um, you know, incorporating that into current, um, what signal do you use, how much weighting do you put on it to make it relevant in today. Um, but over time, that tends to have uh, each individual element has a smaller and smaller contribution. 
It, it just, it really depends on what, what the objective is, what the advertising objective is. Right. They, you know, the advertisers, you know, they, that their world is a world of demographics and what constitutes the, the stuff that, um, that, that interests their specific, the specific market that they're trying to address. Right. And, and so, you know, uh, media is one of those things. And there's a, a high amount of traffic around media and as you you know, as an advertiser, as you're putting a campaign together, you you will find associations that are related to demographics. Right. And I think uh, what we're driving home here is like that the major difference between now and 20 years ago. I mean, you were saying that speech recognizers and natural language understanding has been around for 20 years is data. I mean, the, both the quantity and the integrity of it, and. Um, you know, we have a variety of advertisers, and we can trust that a little bit more, that they're more customized to our, to our uh, interests. Right. One of the things that I've been coming across being in the sync world, I do music sync licensing, is that finding out that there's metadata can actually be, uh, in my world, dynamic, right? So instead of, you know, when you enrich data, usually you have a subset, you have a catalog, and you enrich it, and you go, okay, well, it's enriched, here you go, here you go back, whether it be subjective or better objective metadata, how can you make that ever-changing and, and amoebic and, and growing? So, um, you know, so dynamic metadata in this world is ever-changing. And so, hey, you know, you have a band at South by Southwest, and then it sounds like Taylor Swift, and, you know, next thing you know, next South by Southwest comes along, they're tagged along with it, and now that next person's tagged along with it. Now you're lowering your demographic every time you've changed your data that goes along with artists. How can artists, use and manipulate this ever-changing dynamic metadata to their benefit from a rights holder standpoint from you guys. Like, I really hear this information and make it tech. How can we bring it back down to like the music part of the business? Is it, go ahead. So w one area that, that I see is, is uh, of, of interest is what I would call the packaging or licensing right up your alley. Right. And how can I combine collections of content that actually, if, if you look at it today, you have you have compilations that are put together by someone else. Why can't artists come together and build out co compilations together um, using metadata of related uh, track songs and package them together, license them together, and then work out a distribution model? Why does that have to be left to a few small, uh, whether it be um, labels or uh, packaging companies, why can't that be artists coming together with data to do analysis of related and uh, individuals, maybe you asked about how data might be used, individuals that listen to certain types of data, putting those together into a, a package. So how would they get that information? So that may be a service that they license uh, from uh, a Rovi or uh, a Grace Note. Um, there are third-party um, analytic providers for data. Um, it's fairly new in the industry, but I think the key message here, what I was, is, is, uh, is maybe the model of how content is packaged together now. Today, it's up to, I guess, the label and the artists, but what if you cross to multiple artists and work together? Right. And the, the ease of getting that out is it just a click as opposed to spending any money to press or do anything like that, the old school way about it. Um, you know what? That's pretty much all I have, um, but I'd like to take a few questions and I know we're rooting a little early, but um, hopefully we can get some smart people in here to ask us some questions and, and get this open. So I'm going to open it up to the room here to see if anybody has any questions. 
Sure. So uh, I think you mentioned about the long tail, and I think that's a big problem for music. Any kind of recommendation is coming. So how exactly is? Oh, okay. All right, so you guys uh, spoke about the long tail recommendation, right? And there is a narrow band that users actually have that they listen to, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it falls into the popular uh, category. So how exactly do you handle that, though? Well, you, you have to start off just by having a comprehensive database to be able to really catalog uh, as much of the information, as much of the, you know, in our case, music and video uh, that that there is in the world. The, I mean, as, as, a, as a civilization, there is this uh, fading that happens as long tail, you, you just, you lose some of it as time goes by. And then one of the good things about where we are right now is that uh, a lot of the stuff is getting captured in systems that are quite robust now. And so from this point on, the, the accuracy and the longevity of this stuff will probably be uh, much richer. But the long tail, you just you have to do what you can to keep as much of that in your catalog. But that is the, that is the reason that some of these catalogs are 30 to 50 million tracks large. It's because they have all that long tail. I think this gets back to, the, to, to Jay's earlier question about how, um, how do you help people find that stuff? We had a really uh, interesting, you know, we have these hackathons at, at, at work, and uh, one of the last ones we had someone do uh, a, a, a kind of time transposition recommendation. So if you uh, happen to like, um, you know, uh, music from the 70s in a specific style, what would you like today? Or if you're a big fan of a uh, current set of popular music, what from the 60s would have been of interest to you? And so as you, do, as you develop more, um, uh, you, you find these relationships between that, you can reveal that, but some of it has to just respond to what, what the user's actually interested in listening to. You, you, you know, there's just, mm -hmm. 50 million is just too many tracks. I thought you were gonna go a slightly different direction there with that, actually, um, because, I don't know, I live in the long tail, definitely, and I sort of see myself getting into like Frank Zappa and Steely Dan in my 40s, but I have, I'm not there yet. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all about user engagement, like how much, you know, I mean, and, and being savvy about which uh, recommender you use, um, I think like, a, a recommender like StubHub, which pulls from your iTunes or like sort of your existing data as opposed to having to start fresh and you know, be given some like shuffle of all the music. Uh, they're gonna be more biased to the, to the head of the tail, right? Um, we'll stay there for one second, Gina. I know you are into the learning part of the world of things. And you haven't got there yet with a zapper or a steely Dan or whatever, right? So, which is, I got you, some recommendations. Yeah, I have some. I have like fifty. We're on Oingo Boingo. So yeah, getting close. But so oh, my we have to talk Oingo Boingo for sure. My question is, can and you're in this learning world of things. You're into the learning aspect of you know the way computers think and learning. And Joshua, for lack of a better analogy, from War Games. Um, can we do that? Can something learn that far ahead right now as far as going, hey, when you're 39, 40, or me, 44, what do I need to be listening to? I and mean, more classical. I mean, can this system 
If you if you make the assumption that there exists other users like you, then then yes. I mean, it's all about the robustness of the system and being able to detect that you are a user like that. But that's how a user to user recommender system works. Okay. If you Michael. Could predict the future, would you really do it to figure out what your playlist was going to be? <laughs> <laughs> or where the stock market was going to be? <laughs> Stock market playlist for that, sure. That What's more realistic? What's more realistic, right? I, I, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna listen to this song anyway, or the stock market's gonna go to. Two. It's completely unrealistic because it's life experience and your life changes. But I, she's just debating with you right now that it, that's that's false because she just said at 39:40 she's gonna be listening to Frank Zappa and Steely Dan. Music from the Dan. 70s. So <laughs> no, I'm, I'm saying you know that's that's the conversation, right? I'd like to pick up um, one thing on the question you asked. There's the data, the signals, um, and the technology along that. Also, for long tail, is the willingness. You, you, you touched on it earlier in your theme about consumers now are, are more apt than ever to take a device and just say, give me something, I feel lucky, recommend. Um, if we asked recommenders and music services, say, 15 years ago, um, Let's see, that would be iTunes, mp3.com, I don't know, my, my disc, that's my recommender. My family is my recommender. My friends are. So a lot has changed. I think going forward, the long tail becomes now available if consumer interaction is um, a willingness and an interest saying, give me something and surprise me. Surprise me based on what I listen to, where I'm at, how I feel at the moment, or um, where I'll be at 40 whatever your interest is. And I think that's, that's a, a real opportunity for the industry now on a go-forward basis. So is... I'll get one second. But with that, is there a possibility of being wrong? No. Good. Next question. <laughs> you had a question. Go ahead. Hey, I'm, I'm that was Hank a softball, by the way. <laughs> I'm Hank Hanna with Geek In Radio. Um, at the beginning of the panel, you said that the world says your friends are the best people to give you recommendations or something to that effect. And I haven't Quote, heard, unquote. Right. right. And I haven't heard anybody sort of address this, but it's along, along the same lines. And that's the phenomenon of your friends and influencers um, influencing you to like something that maybe you wouldn't have liked if you discovered on your own. And so I'm just wondering what the panel what the panels thought. There's a phenomenon in the, in, the fit, or in the fashion industry that this pair of boots that I'm wearing is not cool unless somebody cool is seen wearing them. And so I'm just wondering what your guys' thoughts on, on that uh, phenomenon. I think in this case, it's about curating your friends. I mean, there's certain yeah. friends. That, I was going to uh, say, some of my friends have the worst I'm taste in music. Gonna, <laughs> I'm going to judge from their taste. Uh, you know. I guess that's kind but, of... But it, 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 I, I think it gets to a point that what are trusted sources... You know, that, so some of those are your friends, but not all your friends are trusted sources for, for music recommendations. They might be, you might have some friends who are good for music, some are good for film, and uh, some for fashion. Um, there may be services that you start to really be compatible with. You really start to like the stuff you're getting from. So it's, it's trust. And, then, and how do you develop trust? Well, you know, you use things for a while and it starts to go well. Like that, that's why like when we were first talking about what are the, the measures by which recommendation system is successful, people keep using it. That's, that's bottom line. I, that's a good point. I, I really want, when I opened up the questions about, you know, someone sitting in this seat or people around you, I kind of was getting at the point of what you're saying, right? Does that influence 
the recommendation as well. And I, I'd like to see that human element come into the, the learning part of this equation. It's like, hey, there's three people around me. I don't necessarily know if I'm cool enough to do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, that's a whole human part of it that I, I think these systems could probably learn over and, time. You know? And building on this kind of the knowledge graph or social graph type, uh, knowing that you have interactions with these three, four friends, your, your fashionistas, your video nistas, I guess, and your music... Uh, folks, nistas, um, and detecting that you keep using a particular set of ones that actually line up with uh, several of them so that you don't have to tell a system, hey, I, I trust these folks, their music tastes are actually pretty good and they give me new stuff that actually is pretty useful. Why not just have a system that has awareness of your interactions and say, oh, these, on some of those friends, uh, you, you tend to not listen to any of their songs or any of their content. Um, but these, I see a connection, a relationship. So those are all signals in these graph-based um, systems now more and more, they work. And, and they'll, they'll begin to filter out, signals boil up, and there's a weighting that goes on there. And then, not to be mean, but some of your friends become a lot less valuable for your music or your boots. <laughs> well, and some of it, too, is, is that, you know, as we look at social and, and StubHub, there's, you know, tastemakers and there's followers. I'm, I'm probably more of a follower, and we have a large audience where we could give them, the, the tastemakers, a platform to reach out and, and get people to yeah. follow them. And that's part of the thing that we'd like to, we'd love to enable with, with social and, and StubHub. Next person. Hi, Michael Good from Make Music. I, I was wondering what you could share without, like, giving away special, uh, special sauce or anything on what types of data you're finding particularly effective? Is it the social recommendations? Is it music metadata? Is it data about the music itself, like Pandora's encoding? What, what types of data have been particularly useful in, in, in your company's uh, situations for driving the recommendations? You know, the recommendations are, uh, the, uh, making good recommendations is difficult um, if you're going to create a system for doing it. And there's many different approaches for doing it. You know, there are some of the earliest really focused on collaborative filtering. You know, you like this and he likes this, so maybe, you know, you'll, this person will like this. Um, uh, you know, we, we, our system is based very heavily on uh, classification and, um, and looking for uh, relationships between classification. Um, popularity data feeds into this a lot, and social has an aspect of popularity. I, the point I really want to make is that all of these things have value, and um, I, I've seen examples of all of them being done really well and all of them being done poorly. And so, um, it re really, it's just sort of, it, you know, to say, oh, I'm going to pick a, I'm going to pick system X because that method is going to be the truest method. I, I, I think it's really more about the the nature of the system and and uh, how robust it is. I do also think multiple approaches tend to complement each other as well. So, so building on with Tom, um, from the Rovi side, it's it's certainly the metadata as a foundation, both factual and all of the the curation and. And then layering on the um, the social, the signals, the connections, and uh, just echoing what Tom says too. I, I don't think it's like one or the other, or it's all uh, dynamic, or it's all factual, or it's all uh, curated. I actually think it's a combination of those, and then the technology that goes along with that. Um, 
I think we have a long ways to go in the industry. Um, I think there's a tremendous amount of really fantastic things going on with interaction and with sharing and things like that. So I, just more good stuff to come in that space. Uh, hi. Um, to go back to the tastemakers, um, I, I think it really comes down to who the demographic is that your service is for. So for me, I'm like really on the early adopter and I really want to find the new stuff. Like even going to Spotify or Google Play is even at that point, it's fine um, for some things. But going to shuffler.fm or Hype Machine or YouTube is where I really want to be because I want to connect to the blogosphere and find things before they are released um, to the music services because I want to know before anyone else wants to know or anyone I want to know before everyone else so I can tell everyone else because I'm a broadcaster and um, so I think just it's just important to know who your demographic is when you're making um, either a product or when you're thinking about a feature and um, sometimes people say, well, why would you want to spend all this time making a feature for that person? Because the majority of the people are not those people. They're lean back people. They are not going to ever take that time. And it's like, well, that is the person who is taking the time to do the work. And by stroking my ego and putting me forward, I will go ahead and do the work for you and put the human element forward. And I will actually bring all my friends and huge, 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 huge networks I'm connected to into the service, and then I can actually break um, an artist that hasn't quite broken yet, a la the fashion um, uh, idea that was offered in the front. So um, these are things that I think really do need to be introduced um, further into the music recommendation services, because the algorithms alone aren't enough. Um, they're good. Yes. But it's it's the human component and this like this I just I have but to you know. But you tend to forget that the human part of this technology is coming from a human, right? So all this information and everything that these guys have in their databases was generated from a human, right? Most of it. There's a lag rhythms and there's you know recommendation tools that they're using to learn what the human is. But there's a lot of human elements in inside this data. Right, so you definitely have to take that in consideration. And I'm come from the music world. Um, I've worked for labels, distributors, and I know exactly what you're saying, man. I want to tell everybody in this room that the best band in the world tomorrow is X, and I'm be the coolest guy. I, mm -hmm. you know, that's I, people get off on that, and that's what's going on right now, right? That's where the world is right now. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to be that way in five years, right? The human interaction part of the things is going to kind of go out the window and it's going to be down to exactly specifically catered for that person without them ever actually having to talk to anybody. I, I, I completely, utterly disagree I, with okay, that. I disagree so, too. Um, so because there will be people who want the, that Let's get piece, it going. But, um, <laughs> but the, the human interaction piece is what people follow. And like I said, like whoever mentioned that, like I'm connected on Spotify to... Um, to my Facebook, and I have a lot of people who I don't care what they're listening to, but if Spotify were to offer up, hey, did you know that they're also listening to um, uh, Of Empress, you know, or Empress Of, like I'm really into the, to her right now, which reminds me of the Cocteau Twins. Like, oh, they, those two people are, and then I would connect to that. So I'm, I'm not knocking it. I, I also work in recommendations, like yeah. I work at StubHub, so it's like I'm totally into all this. I'm just saying to bring it to the next level, <laughs> Um, it really is the human aspect to pull it 
to pull it back in. Just so the, 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 I, I totally agree with you. It, it, the, the only part I was uh, dis disagreeing with is I don't think that's ever going to go away. Um, uh, and, you know, one of the things I love about working at Grace Note as a, as a huge music fan myself is that all my colleagues are nuts for music. And so, you know, to your point, Jay, we uh, like w there, there's a there's a passion with which we are trying to classify the world's music so that we can help people find the music that they're looking for. That's never going to replace you know, what this guy is doing. And I, I want those people out there forever because they're, you know, they're, they're part of our discovery process too. Um, but, but that information is, it's going to find its way to flow through these systems in other ways because these are things that are going to start to become trends and you start to notice them and this is the way that it all filters out and people find it. But, you know, we hire people like this because we need that kind of information. The world's going to depend on it going forward. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's just you know, I I just think that that information still got to stem from somewhere, and the personal aspect of it is why you would want to hire those folks in your system, yeah, and it goes yeah. into the system. Yeah. and that kind of was my point. I don't want to take the human element out of it recommendation either. I just want to make that noted. <laughs> Yeah, I see sort of a spectrum from your personal library to the unknown library being, you know, a lot like shuffling your iTunes to discovering new music uh, with something like SoundHound, you know, lifting your phone up and finding a new song. Um, so living somewhere in the middle, you know, deciding, deciding where you want to be in the middle is, uh, is all about how much energy you want to put into the, to the system. And some of it, I feel like, is just choice for, for the consumers and, and, and the fans is that you know, it's similar to the current generation, whether it's iTunes and different categories to browse in. Now we have the, this data that, that's going to allow other means of discovery, and it's putting those all together and, um, and providing the right thing at the right time. That's coming. Context. Right. That's context. Okay. So where do you see that? Coming? I, I think you're going to see that with some of the watches that individuals are wearing, and um, that translating into another signal as input into these recommender uh, systems based on what I like, what my social interactions are, who I've listened to, et cetera, et cetera, so where I'm at. Um, and it may be that um, you said because I'm sweating, maybe it's because I am running. So not only am I sweating, but I, I'm motion. Um, and it's time to introduce some, some more music that you've never experienced that will pump it up that fits the context instead of a extremely classical elevator, slow elevator, uh, while I'm running. That would, be, that would be bad, make me trip and fall kind of thing. So that would be a bad recommendation, for example. So that, that's coming in, in the next few years. I don't, I don't think that's too far out. No, and, and to your point about auto earlier, <laughs> like this is coming to automotive as well, like more and more biometric <laughs> More metal. More metal music. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, yeah, um, I actually had a very similar question. When I used uh, Grace Note and Rovi at Rhapsody and Google Play, a lot of it was based on cutting music by this very granular sort of uh, genre tree. And, you know, as music continues to move towards activity and contextual, is there like this very granular, granular like uh, activity tree similar to what there was for genre? Or is that something that's coming, as you said? I address it. Rovi's like knowledge graph, very, very granular. They, they, 
we troll like 100 million sites. We look at um, tons and tons of data, and that that very much feeds into ranking and knowledge graph style, weighting those, moving down trees, all that activity as you as you as you called it. Uh, combine it with all of the uh, core metadata and uh, all of the curated data uh, to make a recommendation, for example, yeah. And, and that's, that's a today now, and we're going to see that technology continue to evolve. And then to Jay's point is more and more and more data, yes, absolutely. And, and to improve the recommendations, but I think honestly to, to um, make it easier for the consumer to consume. I think all of us would like to discover new things without spending more effort. At least I know I, I, I'm not into the more effort just to discover something new. Um, ideally, it would be, can you make it easier for me to discover and to be delighted and well, not cost me too much? One of the other things, because you drew the analogy between, uh, say, genre classification and, <laughs> and um, you know, these, uh, what, what ways we might classify um, the, these uh, other um, newer data points is that um, classifying music is something that we've been doing for hundreds of years. Uh, all this other stuff is very new. And so it, it's going to take a while for those kind of processes to mature. And I think the more pervasive the like company or hardware, I mean, Apple, Google, these companies that uh, you know we interact with like a lot, <laughs> uh, then you know the more like bigger idea they have about your life. So uh, this context uh, piece of the puzzle is more filled in. I'll take one more question, and then uh, we're going. Um, I'm a long tail guy and big fan of uh, Discovery. Um, and so part of me is very excited to know that there's a growing catalog in the world of 30, 40, even 50 million tracks. But the realist in me knows that only maybe 8 million of those are ever actually played on services and uh, an even smaller amount of that um, is played more than once. Um, uh, so either Discovery needs to uh, expand its reach into the outer reaches of this huge universe of music. Um, but another question that comes to mind, I'd like your feedback on it, is how many of those tracks would you estimate are straight-up duplicates um, between compilations and re-releases, well, remasters? That's an interesting Ton. question. I'll let these guys get into it, but one huge. of the problems I try to initiate this in the beginning of the, of the panel was the benchmark for data, right? Of the objective data. So the ISRC codes, the title, the track names, various artists, whatever. So that's kind of the, where I was trying to go with that, and that's kind of the, the big question. I'll let these guys take it from there, but definitely the objective part of the metadata is, is where you're talking about, right? So I'll let you guys take it away from there. Yeah, th there there's tons of duplication in those catalogs. Um, and in addition, there's tons of junk in those catalogs. And, and I, I, you know, Granted, that's, there's a certain amount of that that's subjective. But for example, there's um, you know, a, a problem that you'll run into when you start looking at that data is there's a, a surprisingly huge number of sound-alike bands, just unbelievable number of them. I, you know, maybe somebody's interested in that stuff, but I don't see it being a, an area we want to focus on at all. And I think most music listeners aren't that interested in it. If they are, there's probably a way for them to go find that. Karaoke. Uh, karaoke makes up a large portion of that kind of stuff. And then there's all this kind of like packaged 
uh, music, like things is just like you don't know who the artist is. It's just, you know, sort of musical wallpaper. And um, so between the duplication and all this kind of not particularly productive catalog, um, it's true that that number reduces significantly. But I don't think there's a person in this room is going to listen to a million songs in their lifetime. So it's, uh, there's a lot of data. I think we're going to end it on that note, but I want to pose one more question to the panel and we can get out of here. It's cold. Um, besides context aware, besides context aware, what we've been talking about and obviously natural language understanding, give me at least one thing that you're excited about that hasn't been talked about. And I'm talking like a five-year scope. I loved the movie Her. Did anybody see that? Yeah. That, you know, the the technology in that, like, they, they, the focus was uh, uh, so many different directions. I just loved the notion of the earpiece kind of being like my mobile device and that I had a natural language interaction with that. And I could say things like, I want to I want to listen to some melancholy music. No, not that one. Not that one. That that's okay. And you know, like I think that's a good vision for the future. Yeah, my ideal recommender combines natural language understanding with music information retrieval. Um as a musician, you know, being able to say uh only the music that's greater than 120 BPM or uh you know, I don't know, just using metadata, but also music information uh, as a, a source of recommendation. So, so for me, at least on, on a personal basis, we kind of touched on pieces, but bring it together is that that's what I call context or situational where I, I, I really do want access. Sometimes I like, I'm going to use this wallpaper. I like that. There are lots of uh, content where I'm in different settings and different moods and different feelings and places that actually I would love for, um, I'll sign up with a service that can bring actually that, that mood, context, location aware, um, whether it be running, whether it be I need to quiet, peaceful, and need to be thinking about it, um, of the beats and all that, but not have to ask for beats or anything like that. It allow a system that actually can present that to me without the effort, knowing where I'm at, what my mood is, and, and help me discover something I've never experienced before music-wise, that I say, I like that. Cool. And I'm... <laughs> Karen, cool. Right? Karen, do you have something? <laughs> for, for, for me, yeah. It, it's, uh, it, it's really the ability for, for technology and, and online to, to bring people together and in, in the offline, right? So people are passionate about music. They're passionate about the artists they love. And, you know, certainly as, as online and, and technology services, we can use that to actually bring back people together, connect them, let them find things that they're mutually interested in, and, and really get people off and out of the couch and, and kind of back with their friends again. Right. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I really appreciate uh, these guys on the panel. And take care of yourselves.